Hello, and welcome to the CROCcast, Peace Studies Conversations, convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm Erda Fils, a graduate student at the Croc Institute. I'm here with two of my classmates, Ide and Bernice, to talk about a class that we took called Racial Justice in America, offered through the Center for Social Concerns here at Notre Dame. In this class, we read this amazing book called How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. In his own words, the book is about Clint's visit to, quote, the eight places in the United States, as well as one abroad, to understand how each reckons with its relationship to the history of American slavery, unquote. Part of the class were seminars where we read and talked about the book, but the major meat and potatoes of the class was retracing some of Clint's steps and going on what I have taken to calling a racism road trip, where during spring spring break, we visited some of the same sites that Clint did, as well as some other additional sites in the U.S. that were important to both the history of slavery and the story for the struggle for civil rights. We went to the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which is somehow one of the few plantations left standing in the South that does tours that are focused on the enslaved people who worked the land and not the enslavers who owned people. We went to the Lorraine Motel, the site of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We went to Angola, the site of the largest maximum security prison in the United States, and it also just happens to be built on the site of a former plantation. We went to museums and we talked to people who were there during the civil rights movement who marched and fought for equality. In this episode of the CROCcast, I'll be chatting with Ide and Bernice, who also participated in the racism road trip. We'll be having a conversation about our experiences during the week, how physically going and visiting these sites affected us, and what we think about the current racial landscape in the U.S. and how we can possibly achieve just peace and racial equity in our lifetimes. So we'll just start by doing introductions. Um, So like I said, I'm Erda. I'm uh, in my second year of my Master's of Global Affairs with a concentration of peace studies here at the Kroc Institute. Um, And I was born in Haiti originally. I moved to Florida when I was nine years old. uh, And I lived there all through undergrad. And then I did Peace Corps for some time. And now I'm here at Notre Dame. (laughs) Um, And my focus is kind of on corporate social responsibility and how the business world can help solve social issues. Hi, Aide. Who, who are you? <laughs> Hi, thank you, Erda. My name is Aide Cuenca. Um, I part also the Master of Global Affairs. I am in the concentration of sustainable development. This is my second and last year in the program. I am originally from Ecuador. I moved to the United States seven years ago to pursue, uh, uh, continue with my studies. And now um, you found me here at Notre Dame. Um, Bernice? Hi, my name is Bernice Einstein. I'm a freshman studying business analytics and global affairs, and I am from the beautiful Caribbean country of Trinidad and Tobago. I lived there my entire life and came seven months ago to the US to study um, for my undergraduate degree. Yeah, and I just kind of want to start with an introductory question for all of us of what did, because we're all immigrants, turns out none of us were born here in America. Um, um, what did you think about the racial landscape in the U.S. before coming here? And how did that like fit once you got here? I think for me, I always thought, I always knew it was bad in that like persons experience racism. And to me, what can like really put that in context for me was the George Floyd situation. I was like, oh my God, like persons are being killed in the streets, like animals. And so I, I, I knew it was bad. And I think just coming here, I didn't realize 
like I always thought it was like bad on one end of the spectrum like oh racism is just people killing in black persons but then coming here I'm like oh it's so much more than that it's like microaggressions this that that is so much incurring so I mean yeah that's how I thought racism was I always knew it was bad in America yeah and you moved here like last year right yes for school mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. what about you I did yeah in my case I, I was born and grew up in Ecuador um, so my exposure to the United States and a little bit of the uh, racial inequalities were a bit through a job that I had during my time in Ecuador, I was a translator, interpreter uh, for a nonprofit organization that hosted sort of like immersion uh, trips, and they were coming to uh, communities in Ecuador to discuss questions around poverty and equality. So um, through that experience, um, we also host a a year of service for volunteers from the United States. And I think through that experience is where I start seeing more about uh, the differences between uh, white folks and black folks, because those conversations were at the center when people were coming to our country, uh, to Ecuador. But um, that is in the sense of, you know, with direct exposure to the different uh, realities of uh, people in, within the United States. But I think Ecuador um, is a Latin American country that also, uh, you know, has a history with people, um, for especially black people coming from from Africa. And, and we also have a history of slavery. And we even have communities, like sort of like, provinces equivalent to states in a country that are mainly known from for people who escaped during those times and built their own community. So there's something about there that gave me exposure to my own, um, in my own context in Ecuador, but also a little bit of what was the landscape in the United States. Yeah, I think for me, answering that question, I came much younger. I was only nine um, when I moved to Florida. And so my only experience in Haiti is all black. (laughs) My only experience with white people really was I went to a Catholic school. um, And so there were white nuns. And I think the main priest was like a white, like it was all French um, uh, people who had come to work in Haiti. And so, and I saw them rarely and their skin looked fragile to me, like as a (laughs) small Haitian child. Um, And then when I came to the U.S., like it just flipped from me only seeing black people ever and then rarely seeing white people to the opposite of seeing white people everywhere um and then the black people who i saw weren't like haitians they were black americans and other caribbeans and all of that and so for me as a child it was just like this complete paradigm shift that i still i feel like haven't gotten over um what it feels like to grow up in a place where all our presidents were black versus a place where a black president is a huge monumental thing. Um, and so that's kind of what my relationship was before coming here. Um, so the way we're going to organize a podcast is around every day of spring break, we went to different places in the South, um, places that Clint Smith visited and some places additionally as well. Uh, and so I'm just going to go through it day by day and talk about our experiences, how it made us feel, what we thought about it. Um, we start with the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, which was our first stop um, in after driving, what, eight hours from South Bend? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did, and uh, Bernice and I and one other person were in the car together, um, and so we really got to know one another. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what did you think about the Lorraine Motel? What did you think? This was the site of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., um, and it was kind of after, 20 years after his assassination, was bought and was turned into the National Civil Rights Museum, and it's it has, like, 
like a museum side that's classic museum that like talks about the history of uh, the civil rights movement. And then it has like a glass enclosure of the two rooms that he was like shot in front of one room and then he was taken to another, um, you know, to try and do something. And then you know, that's the room where he died, actually. Um, and then there's also a part across the street where the shooter was standing that was also part of the museum as well. So what do we think about it? How did it make it feel? I remember when I first got to the museum and I saw when it was um, it actually produced mm-hmm. um, was, I think it was 1985. And I remember thinking like, wow, that was really recent. Like yeah. you'd expect it to like, I guess, given the progress that we had in the civil rights movement to be a little bit sooner. Well, later in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was just like, the f- to me, that was a testament of like just what I would experience before going into the museum. The fact that all this seemingly progress that we made in the face of racism that we really haven't mm-hmm. <laughs> been able to make, because you know we're we're now starting to fully reckon with it. Um, but just going into that, and I think what what really did it for me was just like seeing all the persons that died because like in Trinidad and Tobago like we got independence in 1962 and I remember looking at the voting matches and I think that was like 1965 and I was like to me I was just trying to wrap my mind around the fact that like persons were out here fighting to be a part of the fabric of America and like Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean we were kind of just like independence republic you know what I mean and so and that also speaks to my experience as an international student coming here um so I was really just like in that museum specifically I was comparing timelines like oh in 1965 this was what black persons in America was doing but this is what black persons in the Caribbean was doing mm-hmm. and it was really it took me out of my body for a second like wow um but I just remember like like going around like oh that could have been my brother like that mm-hmm. I see my uncle I see this so it was really hard for me um but again, really important for me to reckon. I, I think at the museum, I recognize the power of a lie. Because you think, oh, slavery is over, voting rights is over. Mm-hmm. But then you get to see all the little things, like the five-year-old, oh, the five-year-old boy, and they spoke about how they dragged outside his house. And I immediately thought about, like, what about the mother? What about the sister? Like, how was their lives affected after that? You know what I mean? So I kept... When I, every time I read a poster, I kept trying to think about the stories of the individuals yeah. after this, not incident, this brutalization, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, who like even speaking about it now, my pause are raising because uh, this is not at all what I expected. I knew it was hard, but I don't know it was all this. Like, mm-hmm. and, and every single way a person could be discriminated against, black persons were discriminated against, you know? Yeah. And, and so... And going through that that experience, it also, I always have respect for African-Americans, but it definitely tremendously increased my respect for African-Americans because just how many years ago, y'all can even go, but now y'all have a, like, in 2008, I believe it was, a black president. Like, mm-hmm. that's tremendous, tremendous yeah. accomplishment. And so it just really put everything in context to me and it allowed me to start asking different questions, like, what was the story of these persons? What are the kind of structures that were in place that are facilitated these kind of things? Like, how were these infrastructures still in place? Um, but yeah, that's just like, it, 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 that museum specifically allowed me to compare timelines between America and the Caribbean, as well as mm-hmm. like allowing me to really 
incorporate the stories of the persons living through that. So that was that experience for me in the museum. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, I think Mother Luther King uh, definitely is an international figure, mm-hmm. and it goes like across borders. And uh, and I think her dream, right, her recital of her dream um, in one of the big protests in Washington D.C. is something that you hear, and I I remember hearing about him back in Ecuador. So being in this place and going through, like, you know, like, because the, the scenario was still trying to maintain how it looked like back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. And even the cars were there, like, the whole structure, you couldn't see it. It's, like, frozen in time. And you are walking walking through it and, uh, and thinking about, like, this persona and the importance of this persona for the movement back mm-hmm. then and how people were putting their life you know, their lives on the line to fight for justice. And that's something that uh, these days, like, people don't see it, like, how hard was it, like, how challenging it was, and how people were willing to do, to to risk their lives and give up their lives that it happened for Martin Luther King to fight for justice. And people easily forget that and easily, like, and I'm not saying his recitals or his... uh, you know, like her dream, right? Like this, mm-hmm. it's just the this uh, words that are repeated and repeated again in the mainstream. I'm not saying those are not valid, but what I'm saying is like it's easy to look at that and forget mm-hmm. about the context in which uh, it happened. And he was there in solidarity with those. Uh, if I remember correctly, like there was a strike happening yeah. back Sanitation at that point. Workers. Exactly, and he was in solidarity, like showing mm-hmm. that solidarity with the movement and. I think that speaks volumes of how uh, people and how, like, in this case, Martin Luther King is, uh, is a symbol of, of this, this fight. Yeah, I think that that leads me to kind of my next thought is the, the fact that a lot of the places that we went to on this racism road trip were places of violence, mm-hmm. like were places where people died, places where blood was shed. And I, I that goes directly to what you're saying, idea of, like, the myth of Martin Luther King, the idea that I have a dream mm. speech, this stuff that's mm-hmm. heard around the world, like you said, kind of papers over the fact that like he was shot in cold blood mm-hmm. and we went and we saw like mm-hmm. where it happened, like on the balcony. Uh, I don't know if everyone else has like the iconic photos in their minds. Mm-hmm. So, like when I got there, when we drove up, it was just like, whoa, like, like, like I was saying, the facade was exact same. There were cars in the parking lot from that that time, from the 1960s. Like, it, it was like walking into the picture, right, in a way that made you unable to ignore the fact that, like, he died here. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I fully expected to see a blood stain. is how, like, real it was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not a recreation. That's actually where it happened. <laughs> like, it's a preservation. But, yeah, like, it just struck me in putting together, like, in thinking of our itinerary, all the places we went, like, how many places were just, like massacre here like major uh, figure died here like and in this weird way that we have this ideation in the u.s of like martin luther king is kind of like the, the black jesus like he died for our sins and mm-hmm. so now mm-hmm. we're done racial qualities <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean we have a black president we've done it guys because he like died at the Lorraine yeah. hotel for our sins um, and kind of just moving forward from um, from that, but still at the Lorraine Motel, um, right across the street from there. Mm-hmm. I think both of us, mm-hmm. all three of us, like saw there was this protester there, um, mm-hmm. and we didn't get a chance to talk to her 
because we were heading out and I just saw like these, she had these big signs that was like, the Civil Rights Museum is like a site of violence. The Civil Rights Museum shouldn't be spending all this money. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like someone's protesting mm. this, even though it's like the National Civil mm-hmm. Rights Museum that presidents have visited. Like, mm-hmm. um, And so then in the car, I looked her up um, and she had been there for since the night since the incident had happened she was a resident at the Lorraine Motel she lived there um and then 20 years later after Martin Luther King was assassinated there when the museum went to buy up the the motel to turn it into the museum she was then forcibly evicted like police came in dragged her out Mm -hmm. like in the most violent way Mm -hmm. and ever since then until now the year 2023 she's been living in a tent across the street from the National Civil Mm -hmm. Rights Museum and protesting its existence and essentially saying that if Martin Luther King was still alive, like he would not be pouring millions of dollars into a museum. He would be, you know, exerting his efforts towards the homeless, Mm -hmm. the poor black um, Mm -hmm. Americans. And so what do we, I I think we had a little discussion in the car about it. What do we think about that? That really affected me personally. I was like, well, this like after going to the museum and being like, whoa, this is an amazing museum. Mm -hmm. It was such a like 180, like to look (laughs) her up and be like, wait, maybe even the museum is implicated, yeah. like, in... Yeah. I think, I, I still think I'm still resonating with that. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to form sort of opinion looking back in, in time, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. without negating the experience of this woman who is mm-hmm. still outside protesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one needs to be also careful about like you know that because you don't you don't want to negate her experience and because first of all we we were not even there mm-hmm. she was there she lived through those years and she she knows and I think there is truth truth uh, around the fact that what she was saying about Martin Luther King being completely opposed of what is happening right now mm-hmm. but I think the other question around that is. Um, so how how do we do it in a way that we keep y- using this? Because unfortunately, he he died there. He was yeah. assassinated in that location, and there's something about showing that and mm-hmm. preserving. Because as we we will keep discussing today, um, it seems like we have fragile memories, yeah. and I think places mm-hmm. like the the National Civil Rights Museum help to folks to educate themselves, to reckon with the story, yeah, the history. Yeah. But I think, yes, I'm still like trying to uh, formulate and, and and think because, yeah, part of me wants to say, yes, she's right about mm-hmm. it. But how, how do we, you know, bridge to the other side? Yeah, I agree. It's still a huge, important, yeah. <laughs> like, historical site. And it's important, like, the physical, mm-hmm. like, being there at mm-hmm. that place and not somewhere else. So mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm also conflicted on the issue because I, I believe what you know the dragging out like that in itself is violence, and I believe yeah. that is completely wrong. And I know like one of the main claims that she made is the fact that you know if Martin Luther King was alive, he would have been taking that same money and spend it to the poor and like mm-hmm. solving all these social issues. But I think the as you mentioned, the fragile memories that we have mm-hmm. is a social issues because then we move forward without recognizing our past. And I so I think that like. To me, that is a commendable way to spend that money because if I didn't go there, I wouldn't have been able to analyze these time frames and then like make further changes in that way. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it did solve an, a, a social issue, you yeah. know, just not in the way that Martin Luther King would have done it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think 
we mentioned it in other sites that we visited that the fact that you know Martin Luther King implemented one strategy, but then we had other activists like um, Kyrie Michael Stokely intervent, um, implementing another mm-hmm. way to solve a social issue. So I think, I think, I still feel the same way about the museum. Yeah. Um, again, not wanting to invalidate the woman's experience, the woman's experience, but mm-hmm. I think it, it was a commendable way to spend the money, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think it's that the greater thing is what we kind of have been talking about this whole mm. time and we'll keep talking is like, what what does the legacy mean? What does the, the mm-hmm. mythos, the thing that we all learn in, in elementary school and we go to museums to learn again, mm-hmm. like what does that, what is that story versus like the reality of being mm-hmm. shot in cold blood, mm-hmm. people getting evicted, like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and holding both of those things in our mind. Um, actually moving forward now to our next stop in the tour uh, was Mount Bayou, Mississippi, which is one of the, I think, the first Black incorporated town mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. So this was a group of slaves or enslaved people um, who uh, their owner had this ideation of like a utopia. And so he like let the enslaved people make a lot of their own decisions. He let them essentially run uh, the plantation. Um, they were still enslaved. I just want to <laughs> make that clear. And then once emancipation came, they actually ended up buying um, the, the plantation that they lived on um, and owning the land and running it, you know, amazingly, like for mm-hmm. a large profit. Um, and it turns out the person who owned it, their, their, their enslaver, was the brother of Jefferson Davis, the mm-hmm. president of the Confederacy. And so after the Confederacy fell, Jefferson Davis came back and essentially got, you know, through legal means, but, you know, it was a black person versus a white person (laughs) got um, the land that they had rightfully bought um, back. And so Mm -hmm. they were forced to move and they moved to Mount Bayou, Mississippi. Um, And that's where they started their own black only township. And Mm -hmm. it was called like the jewel of the Delta. They were highly profitable. This was the stop where, when, um, Emmett Till was shot and Emmett Till's mother had to come from uh, Chicago to Mississippi. This was like the only safe space for her to exist in Mississippi without straight up being in danger of uh, uh, being shot, lynched, whatever. Um, So it was like in the middle of Mississippi, this like bright spot for black people Mm -hmm. and it still exists to this day. Mm -hmm. And it's still uh, not just predominantly uh, black, but all black, I, I asked the question of like, oh, ha- has it integrated now? Have more white people moved in? Um, and we went to a museum that was talking about the history of it. Um, and the guy was like, yeah, we have two <laughs> white people who have married in um, and they live here. And literally the number two, not just like. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, what did we think about Mount Bayou? Um, what was it like to be there? Um, um, I would say that it was... Uh, you know, this is like a small, small place that yeah. I don't even, I haven't heard, right? And Same. as someone from the outside, from Ecuador, and... Um, I think I mean, most Americans haven't heard it. I just want to... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But even, like, you know, like, even the smallest places are less, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less, uh, you can, you know less about them. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's interesting, especially in particular, how the curators of this museum are tied to to work it and Mm -hmm. I think it shows how dedicated they are and committed they are with no letting the the importance of this Mm -hmm. this place uh for history but for for the region and for for the country in this case the United States um so I think it was like a place in which we were talking to community organizers yeah and I think 
it's, it's, it's one thing is to go to a museum, right? And just like wander around and, mm -hmm. and you know, like read and look at the sculptures or whatever mm -hmm. it is in the museum. But this time you, you are having these conversations yeah. with people who live in the community, yep, yep, yep. who are descendants of those who once they were there and mm -hmm. like make this community so vibrant. And yeah. I think, uh, even though like uh, there's a lot of pain and a struggle and, uh, and a lot of that, like this pocket of of joy also, mm -hmm. and, and the way that they also reckon with it, with the history and their personal stories and share those stories with us, I think it was something that really uh, uh, I don't know like impacted me in a way. Yeah, I think um, for you, Bernice, I want to ask like in thinking about the fact that. When Mound Bayou was created, mm -hmm. it was like one of a, one of a kind, right? Yeah. Like a place for blacks only, mm -hmm. right? As a, <laughs> um, an opposition for all the places that mm -hmm. were for for whites only, and a place that was profitable and you know mm -hmm. had good jobs and all that, where black people could thrive. Um, and now we look at the U.S. landscape now with um, the history and legacy of segregation, and this still fact that we are still segregated to this day, mm -hmm. and there are a ton of places like Mound Bayou but that were forcibly segregated, mm -hmm. right? So there's, like, every, you know, Martin Luther King Boulevard, um, every, like, you know, place in these large major cities, like Chicago, that's, quote-unquote, the black neighborhood or the ghetto. Mm -hmm. I don't use that pejoratively. Um, and so, like, now these places have been forced to be mm -hmm. black-only, right? That have been forced to be segregated. How do we still hold, like, Mount Bayou in our minds? And how does that, like... I, I kind of think of it as this weird irony where chosen uh, isolation for their own safety versus mm. forced segregation. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that? Mm. Yeah, I think being at Mang Bayou allowed me to compare, again, the communities that we formed in the Caribbean mm -hmm. to the communities that's formed in in Mississippi in mm -hmm. that, like, similar to after we were freed from slavery and we did form our own communities and mm -hmm. we see this here. So, like, mm -hmm. and as compared to the last place that we visited, the Civil Rights Museum, we saw that, okay, the distinction between the distinction between the Caribbean as well as and um, America. But now you see, like, okay, well, we had similar forms of rebellion, you're know, coming together, organizing, coming together as a community. Um, and that has been a question I've been trying to ask at different points in the journey along um, for the racism field trip in terms of like integration and the black community yeah. like pros cons you know yeah. what I mean because yeah. like and I think it's it's to give you I guess an example of mm -hmm. where we see that um, I guess the effects that people don't want to speak about with regards to integration is the I can't remember the name of the exact study, but you know the child, the black child that was given the white doll mm -hmm. and the black doll, and he shows the white doll. And I and myself have my own experience with that because you know you grew up with this white media. I remember like being in Sunday school and I told the girl, um, you know, I really wish I had long silky hair like yours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Knowing I'm fully forty and I'm fully black, but my parents are black, mm -hmm. you know. So, um, it really allowed me to question, you know integration mm. like yeah. I know it's tutored as this like integration is good and let's integrate and let's do that mm. and I think one of the ladies said it at, I think Brown Chapel AMA. Uh, yeah. Yeah, said it the fact that like black persons didn't necessarily had a problem being separate the problem they had was equality like mm -hmm. separate but equal you know what I mean yeah. but it was not separate but equal so I think that in a, this, that's a question I'm still reckoning with or rec I guess 
reckoning with in terms of answering like mm-hmm. what was the negative effects of integration that person don't want to speak about um mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm still tossing with that question but i think um at mong bay the, the museum is that where they showed us the emmett till yeah yes uh, so that was particularly i don't know if you remember my reaction to that yeah but i you know like that was a story that touched me even in Trinidad and Tobago. Like, I knew about mm-hmm. Emmett Till in Trinidad and Tobago. But then, uh, I don't know, like, something inside me broke even. I didn't even see the full body. Like, just seeing mm-hmm. part of the body. And, you know, and this is, again, the importance of, like, not the importance, but rather the power of a lie. Mm-hmm. Because I started calculating. I was like, Emmett Till is my grandmother's age. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if my grandmother was to be killed in that way. Yeah what would have happened to me? Like, why mommy was at rape? My grandmother raised me for the, my, you know, my junior years. So that would have been a family without that. That means my mommy would have probably have to seek alternative health, I mean, childcare, which means that she probably would have been able to limit her educational opportunities, which means this, which means that, which means yeah. 20 years down the line. So you see, it's just like missing one family member yep. Yep. have so much impacts on generations to come. And mm-hmm. so that's just like one of the ways that Emmett Till's story being brought um, to like kind of help me analyze. So the second thing I, I would say is like a, a a trend I've been noticing in the Civil Rights Museum: the need to have a sacrificial land in order to see progress. Yep. Mm. So we call it t- the Till Generation, where mm-hmm. okay, Emmett Till was killed, and then we have all this progress marches, this, that, that, yeah. and then George Floyd was killed, and we have marches, this, that, that. Yep. But like, what are happening in between those years? Because in between those years, black persons are still suffering because they have black persons are still being killed. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it really forced me to really think about why do we have to wait till a black man or black woman is lying mm-hmm. on the floor dead to see the change? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're still being discriminated against. We're still being treated unfairly. And so I think that is another question I have been wrestling with. So I think even though the trip gave me a lot of answers, it also gave me a lot of questions mm-hmm. as well. Like question of like timelines between the Caribbean and, and America, the question of integration in the black in the black community, and this question of like why do we need a sacrificial arm? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. Yeah, I think that literally that is exactly what I was talking about of all these sites of violence mm-hmm. that we visited even though it was a non-violent movement. Yes. <laughs> like, the irony of, like, Black people actively deciding to not, I don't say not fight back, but to fight back in a different way that's mm-hmm. not violence, and that being responded with even more violence. Yeah. <laughs> like, but, like, Emmett Till wasn't just killed, he was, like, mauled and tortured and, like, mm. right? Like, all these things that it was just, like, why did it, why did it have to be like this? Like, mm-hmm. the, is, is this the price of progress, like mm-hmm. you were alluding to? Um, and that leads, I think, right nicely into our next stop, which was Angola in, or the Louisiana State Prison Museum and Cultural Center. Um, so Angola is, uh, it started off as a plantation, one of the largest ones in Louisiana. Um, and then after emancipation, it was a sharecropping site. Um, and then after that, it was a prison. Um, and then on that prison, it's a work prison. So every single inmate has to work. And they were doing the same work that the slaves were. They were picking cotton and they were tending animals and they were, you know, putting out um, uh, 
farms and stuff. Um, and then they also were part of the uh, uh, prisoner lending system, mm-hmm. lend lease, um, mm-hmm. where they would essentially lease prisoners out to mm-hmm. go work for whoever um, could pay for them. And again, they're doing the same, <laughs> like they're breaking rocks. They're, they're, they're essentially building up the infrastructure of Louisiana by day and then going back into these prisons, uh, mm-hmm. the prison by night. Um, and then after that was abolished, it is now what it is today, which is the, the largest maximum security prison in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we came to visit it, and we didn't go actually inside the prison, but there is what I thought was weird, uh, but there's a museum <laughs> where I don't, like this museum, it, it's tough to describe it because it has a lot of just prison history of like people yeah. who happen to gain some fame after going there. Um, to that prison or people uh, attempted escapes um, yeah. there's also kind of a hall of fame of various guards who like work there um, and who uh, were killed there was a blue lives matter uh, um, shirt there mm-hmm. um, there was also um, the electric chair that was yes. used all mm-hmm. around Louisiana mm-hmm. like it was moved from prison to prison whenever they needed to use it called gruesome Gertie um, so again it, it this museum really, ruined me like I I don't know what I expected and it was like this beautiful drive like we drove for like a couple hours through like it it was just like uh uh, off the beaten path like it wasn't like a highway it was like through trees and Mm -hmm. this beautiful nature and then we get to this huge like like one of these sites that's so big that you can't really comprehend like how far big it is and then looking at in the prison museum the map of it and the like farmland over here and it's still to this day a work prison like everyone in the prison still has to work today um and we got to talk to one of the prison um one of the prisoners uh and he like had been there for 20 28 years actually because he he went there when I was born um and so yeah like it it was just just a weird experience what did you guys think yeah absolutely I shared that sentiment um I think I remember going back to the chapter um Mm -hmm. of Clint Smith on this Mm -hmm. and um and just trying to you know like trying to see what he said and trying to you know, look, make sense of what I was seeing. It was just like not expected, right? Because yeah. I still remember there's this, the, in the little, in the middle of this museum, this this area in which there was a showing of all the animals in the area, mm-hmm. right? It was in the middle. And I think they were showing also the work, yeah, yeah. rehabilitation, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Uh, sort of products. And I think it's, yeah, it had a lot of problems in the way that they were portraying people. Mm-hmm. And also the because there was no connection with <laughs> with with the roots of the slavery times mm-hmm. or th- there's nothing like that right and I think it as it, as what Clem Smith said in his book is like they're not showing that they're not mm-hmm. making the connection and when you ask questions around that like there's always like a but we are doing this yeah, but we're, we're making it better but yeah. we're making it better but we're giving this to to, mm-hmm. to the people here. Uh, and I think talking to uh, one of the prisoners there uh, and learning, like, yeah, he's getting paid 10 cents. Yeah. yeah. 10, 10 cents an hour. Uh, it was just like, and, and then, like, they still have to pay for, you know, they still have to get things right for their own, like, uh, yeah. hygiene and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think this, this idea, and I think the more that I learn about that we're going to talk uh, later uh, on mass incarceration, right? Mm-hmm. And 
the, the way that people are portrayed and the the, the, the dignity that mm-hmm. people are just stripped away that allows us to uh, like to this happen like this kind of system to be in place mm-hmm. it's just um, yeah it's, it's dehumanizing and yeah. I think what I, a lot of what I said in that little piece that little area was a lot of dehumanization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think going to Anguilla Anguilla allowed me to realize that this is very much a cultural issue with political consequences mm-hmm. because when I first got introduced to the idea that like oh persons can be owned by persons I was no. like why would they a private <laughs> Yes. Like, um, but... And I just want to put, Angola is no longer a private prison. It okay. was, and yeah. then it was not profitable once they put in reforms, so then it's owned by the state mm-hmm. again. And the idea of a prison needing to be profitable... Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, that was the new one. Like, that was yeah. like an international student movement. Like, oh, okay, this, <laughs> this is different. <laughs> um, but it just allowed me to realize how intersectional this issue is with institutions because mm-hmm. like you got the history to know like okay like with um convict leasing mm-hmm. and the fact that and i think i, I saw it in one other museums the fact that like there was a, this quote that says you know it's cheaper now to get a prisoner because once a prisoner die oh you just get another one whereas with enslaved africans you actually have to feed them take care of them etc and so that really um allowed me to internalize the issue and how to me just like wrong the issue was you know what I mean um just learning about and particularly at this site I understood like how to intersect issues Mm -hmm. so for example um you spoke about like well we got the history of like desegregation and how some citizens didn't want desegregation Mm -hmm. so they formed the white citizens council Mm -hmm. and so now persons who are educated from the White Citizens Council, they get in this particular form of education. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think they spoke at like one of the recent, either it was a governor or state official, but one of the recent Alabama state official, um, you know, attended this white, this these white supremacist schools, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like, you have to really question the kind of laws that they're enacting. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the thing with the unanimous um, jury verdict so that yeah. uh, the judge can override it. As well as the fact that you know black persons were represented proportionally on these jury, um, these verdicts, so that persons were being sentenced to death. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it allowed me to question all these inst- institutional factors that allowed black persons to be disproportionately represented mm-hmm. at these prisons. And mm-hmm. I think another interesting fact um, that the lady mentioned is that you know there are generations of persons in the prison, yeah. so we have grandfathers, brothers, cousins, etc., yeah. etc. Et and to me, like families are here. So that must alert persons to the fact that, okay, like, there must be a root cause, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's allowed me to really rest a little bit. What is the role that institutions are playing in the fate that black persons have today? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So that's why I mentioned that it's very much a cultural issue because it stems from the fact that racism, that people believe that black persons are inferior, but then it's being enacted on in our institutions. Yeah. Um, and so now I can't look at any issue the same. I always have to consider the backstory, like, mm-hmm. okay, but yeah, this is the issue, this is what we see, but what are the roots? Like, yeah. History matters. Exactly, history matters. Yeah, I think a, a question that I want to ask is, should this museum exist? Like, should they shut it down or should they keep it going? Because on one hand, I'm thinking about the, the 
kind of big question that we're dealing with of is segregation good mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a scary question to even exactly. say out loud right mm-hmm. um, um but the idea that it's good is that you get places like Mind Value or it, just thinking of Haiti like you get a place where it is normal to see yourself represented where you are you know mm-hmm. like making your own decisions for your people mm-hmm. right um and then on the other hand, like, you also get the what we have with the doll test, like, where children are seeing white babies is better, mm-hmm. right? That the separation creates a lack of empathy, mm-hmm. I think, like, in all the races. Mm-hmm. But since white people are the dominant race who are have, you know, all the money and mm-hmm. power, then you get this, this situation where the dominant race isn't seeing the results of their privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And so in driving a couple hours to go to Louisiana, to go to Angola, like this is perhaps the first time some people are dealing with mass incarceration and the fact that like, I think they make all the state license plates in Louisiana mm-hmm. at that prison. Yeah. And so it's like, that is just one example of how this thing that's ubiquitous that everyone uses and that like, you just have to dig a little deeper to find out where it's coming from, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think the prison museum existing, the case for it is to say, this is a place for you to come and contend with mm-hmm. <laughs> where all the license plates are coming from, but also contend with like the results of warehousing and mass incarceration and all of that. On the other hand, I don't think that's part of the museum's goals. Like, I think their goal is just, whoa, this museum's been around for a while, right? Look at all this stuff that happened in the, like, hundred years that Mm -hmm. we've been in existence. Um, And we haven't even talked about the prison rodeo, which is... the inmates go and they they do a rodeo like um yeah. and they the big prize is i think 250 dollars but if you're making 10 cents an hour that might as well be like a million dollars to you um and thousands of people come to watch these inmates put their lives on the line and be around like a bull to try and like take it down mm-hmm. and then there's a part where they're playing a card game um or they're pretending they're playing a card game and then the bull is let loose and whoever's the last person at the table like wins the pot like, all these sorts of things that I'm like, Ugh, like, this is, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, should, do we think that it we should just close it down? Or do we think it's valuable to keep the Angola Museum open? I mean, in the way that it is right now, I think it <laughs> yeah. shouldn't be. Uh, and I think it's because, if I remember correctly, the new administrators are, mm-hmm. were planning or are planning to rebranded those were the words yeah we we met we met the new administrator of the museum who had been working there for seven (laughs) days when we arrived yes um and she had some ideas about how to yeah and i think it's it's, um, i think it's the idea of uh showing the positive side and i think people i think it is it's again i think this is a pattern that we see in which like showing the pain and the struggle mm-hmm. and what it is that is happening or why do we have the systems like like the, how the prison is like mm-hmm. is today and what it means to our society today it is is somehow bad it's somehow yeah. not important and somehow mm-hmm. we need to put that away because people are not coming here to learn that people are coming here to see how people are uh, improving their lives and are you know yeah. getting like rehabilitation and are being gonna be good for society mm-hmm. but I think and I think that that is again a way of like minimizing the, this whole structure that mm-hmm. is in place so yeah. I, I think definitely in Disney if there is a space for a museum mm-hmm. if there's one it should be totally changed the, yeah. the, the whole like 
mm-hmm. goal and what he's trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I wish you would explicitly said that this is the site this was the slight of a sleep on yeah, Like yeah. that wasn't explicitly yeah, mentioned. Like yeah. the connection to slavery and so I, I agree there needs to be some sort of rebranding <laughs> um or readjustment or just you know, like just because that museum caused me, forced me rather to examine the institutional factors. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like I was guided to it. Like yeah. this is a timeline, da 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 da. Like I had to make the own connections, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I, I wish it was more deliberate in that that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um we can move forward to the Whitney plantation, the next mm-hmm. step in our racism road trip. Um, and this is a plantation that's halfway between Baton Rouge and New Baton Rouge in New Orleans in Louisiana. Um, and it's apparently one of the few plantations that talks about like it, when you go visit it today that the tour is about the enslaved people. Um, I have not been on any other plantation mm-hmm. tours. This is the only one I've been on, but apparently the other ones are focusing on the big house and you know the white enslavers and how the southern mm-hmm. yeah the southern architecture and the southern bells and the you know um, uh, what is it the like politeness with the, the society and the culture of mm-hmm. white southerners essentially is what they focus on and they have weddings there <laughs> and it's like a whole thing um, and that's like what people go visit it for. And then in, go- I'm sorry, Whitney Plantation focuses on the enslaved people, mm-hmm. what their lives were like, mm-hmm. um, what they did. Uh, and it's a bit like the last bit is you go and visit the big house. But the big part is the um, slave shacks that people used to live in, the work that they used to do. This was, a, I think, a, a sugarcane mm-hmm. um sugar manufacturing plantation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um not a cotton one and so yeah it focused on that what did we think about it um how do we feel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i liked how this one deliberately said mentioned the story of slaveries and i got in more nuanced solution because mm-hmm. again the power of a lie you learn that all slavery happened from this date to that date we were freed then we did this then yeah. we did that but the really was like this is what slaves did and slave yeah. africans did day to day and yeah. This, they mentioned the fact that like on sugar, sugar plantations are particularly brutalized because of the mm-hmm. environment needed to grow um, the sugar cane mm-hmm. and the, how they were, their shacks were terrorized by crocodiles or alligators. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yes. So like that's not something you pick up on reading a textbook. That's mm-hmm. not something I would have known. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like you just say cuttings, sugar, okay. But you don't you don't know those yeah. minute details that had a such a big impact on the lives of enslaved Africans. And so I thought that was, that Whitney Plantation was really helpful in giving me that nuanced view of slavery. Mm-hmm. And again, and I, I think it's resonating with me throughout all the genies, like what are the exact stories of the yeah. persons? And I, as, as well as the fact that I, like how they had the memorable, I thought it was important that they had the memorial wall mm-hmm. where you saw like the exact quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the quotes in particular spoke about how they would um, whip a mm-hmm. pregnant enslaved African and so they had to dig the hole for her belly to go in so she had to lay on the ground to be whipped and so you, you don't get that in storybook you know mm-hmm. so it really allows you to it really deepened my empathy like yeah I think wow. also, like, right when you walk in and you're about to start the tour, they give you your, like, name tag mm-hmm. or whatever uh, that says that you're about to go on the tour. And it's the name of an actual enslaved person, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, who lived in real life. Mm-hmm. And you kind of take on that identity, like, for the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a quote from them. Um, and they, like, it just makes them 
human, exactly mm-hmm. what Bernice was saying, not just a story in a book, not just a mass of people mm-hmm. also of like this many million or like this huge number that you can't conceptualize, but this like individual who suffered, mm-hmm. who lived and died under this mm-hmm. um, system. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I agree, agree with both of you. Um, I think this, this, this particular place was totally it had a different feeling because mm-hmm. you are walking it's like walking to someone's house like someone's home yeah and even though people i don't believe people could claim that those that land that place was their home i walk into one of those shocks right yeah. Yeah. i walk in and walk through the spaces and, I, and we can talk about how small they were mm-hmm. and we can imagine the conditions back mm-hmm. then um but it's just thinking about like lives were built here, yeah. and that's that's something that brings back um, hum, human human dignity, humanity, mm-hmm. and the stories of those who were here. Because um, I want to remember, and I want to learn, and I want to know that it, the lives of these people were so hard and in imaginable ways, in, in ways that I cannot even imagine. Yeah. But I also want to remember the lives that. They were able to build, yeah. even in this horror of mm-hmm. you know horrendous uh, conditions, um, and I think being there is just like sitting with it and and making sure that I'm walking through this land, through this space, being so aware where I'm walking, yeah. because uh, I'm not walking just like to tur- to you know yeah. doing a tour and look at, at these things that apparently other plantations uh, do. Mm-hmm. But I'm walking through people's life yeah. that I don't know, but somehow uh, this place bring them back mm-hmm. and to me in mm-hmm. one way or another. Yeah, I think it. it the the next question I want to ask about this is: it, Are these places making a difference, like in the current racial landscape in the U.S. in how people are thinking about mm-hmm. race relations? Um, I think all of us were all two of us are black, and Ide is um, Latina. Like, uh, all of us are kind of, and we are in this program, Global mm-hmm. Affairs, we're, we're primed to be thinking about racial justice, mm-hmm. equity. Like, I I think in the first day of class, I was talking about just being a Black woman in America mm-hmm. is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that, that forces you to contend with things in a way that um, being white does not. And so if you are a white person or, or just someone who's not connected to this history, someone who's not, doesn't have a personal stake in this, and you're going to the Whitney Plantation or any of the other sites mm. that we talked about already, do you think that's making a difference in how they feel and not just feel, but the actions they're then taking to stop internalized racism, to stop mm-hmm. racial structures, to like fight for mm-hmm. equity? Um. Yeah, like I think you mentioned, like I'm a Latina and I'm not from, you know, mm-hmm. the the context. Uh, but but I think there's there there's always, I guess the Whitney Plantation offers a little bit of create this bridge, right? And mm-hmm. offers this alternative of looking this issue from a different from a different position. And I think people, especially white folks, need to be ready to be in this other position. And I think uh, my hope is that with building the stories and and bring not building but bringing back those stories and bringing back 
what happened because there are so many stories and the stories like uh, Bernice just shared with us is just one of those. Mm -hmm. There are so many of those. Could illustrate people like this is yeah. not something that is just like history. History. Mm -hmm. And and yes, it's not happening in that level these days, mm -hmm. but it's happening yeah. in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it, I want to hope that it can be some sort of a new, uh, offer a new way of mm -hmm. looking at this. Yeah. I agree, um, but I think the, re the returns from having places like this is not going to be immediate. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see mm -hmm. it in generations mm -hmm. to come. Mm -hmm. I believe that social change starts with a conversation, but it ends with action. Mm -hmm. But like the conversation part about, about it is really important. And yeah. I think places like these, where I'm, I'm forced to adopt a new perspective, I'm forced to ask new questions, yeah. it allows me to have better conversations. Mm -hmm. So since being on that field trip, every single book I produced in the classroom conversation I had with my mm -hmm. friends have been informed from perspectives I gained during the field trip. Mm -hmm. You know, so like right now I'm researching like um the food apartheid in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So like analyzing that, considering that perspective, that intersectionality lens, or like the essay I did philosophy for my philosophy class like last week. Mm -hmm. Like taking those experiences and bring it into that. Yeah. And so I think that has allowed me to then engage with my classmates who mm -hmm. then go out into the world and hopefully engage with others. Yeah. So I absolutely agree that these spaces are necessary, mm -hmm. but the returns that we're looking for can't, you know, yeah. we have to invest in it for the long run. Yeah, yeah. it's just one of the many things mm -hmm. that yeah. needs to, mm -hmm. to happen. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, our next two stops together, the Freedom House Canton and Jackson State University. So mm -hmm. Freedom House is um, right outside of Jackson, Miss Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jackson, Mississippi, the state capital. Um, and it is essentially like it's it's a regular house in a neighborhood. But this is where a lot of black civil rights leaders came to organize the huge voting um, push that happened in Mississippi. And I don't know, something about the air in Mississippi, I think, felt different, like once we got there. Um, and there's like this quote about like when you're in Mississippi, the rest of the world doesn't seem real. And where you're outside of the Mississippi Mississippi doesn't seem real mm -hmm. <laughs> because of just how fraught and bloody the racial landscape in mm. Mississippi was. Like, it, this was ground zero for, like, all sorts of atrocities mm -hmm. and of Jim Crow, like, the worst of the worst of mm -hmm. American mm -hmm. um, racial inequity. And so going to the Freedom House where, like, these are places that were sometimes bombed. These are when they started the, the organizing and they asked for these um, young kids to come from all over the U.S. to come and learn and uh, teach people and help them to start registering for votes. There were three people who came, like, as a vanguard, as a first group. And they, I think after two days or immediately, were, like, kidnapped and went missing. And, like, their bodies were found later on murdered, right? Mm. And so that's how they started this. Mm. <laughs> like, that's how dangerous this was. And the other place we went to was Jackson State University, um, where we talked to a professor who had a PhD in civil rights history. Um, and he talked about how uh, the COFO, which I'm not sure what it stands for. Do you remember what it stands for? Was the council? It, it was essentially organizing the NAACP SNEC, like all of the major civil rights um, organizations, they, they organized all of them in Mississippi. I think it was the only place they managed to do it um, under one banner um, to work together in lockstep um, to do these things. Right. And so what was it like to visit there? What was it like talking to um, the professor that we talked to um, and um, at the Freedom House Canton, we talked to one of the descendants of 
I think his grandpa was saying um, was like one of the organizers in this. What, what was that like? I mean, this is the part that I was like, like knowing that people had to organize to this level yeah. to push for, you know, like uh, the right of voting for mm-hmm. black communities. It's mm-hmm. just like, and, and like, and it's just like this whole, because we, we learn about how the movement, you know, young people organize mm-hmm. around themselves to make this possible. And not just like, it, it not only was the, the push to register folks to vote, but also it become like educational and mm-hmm. also things for farmers. Yeah. And this whole programs. Yep. Yeah. So it was all these programs that were born out of this. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, if I remember correctly from the professor at, at COFO, the professor uh, from Jackson State University, it's mm-hmm. like the courage of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks a lot about, um, yes, we, we see this now. We, see, we still see that courage of people, you know, going out of the streets and keep fighting uh, in other ways, different ways back then. But I think it's just like, it, it seems unreal. Like, yeah. as someone who is not from here and had mm-hmm. to go through, like, it's asking me questions, like, personally of my mm-hmm. own history back at home. But also understanding how people, especially in Mississippi, still struggling up to today. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the question I want to ask you, Bernice, in visiting Jackson State, um, the, professor, the professor we talked to talked about how segregation had to be genuine and willing from both sides, Mm -hmm. right? And so not just, you know, legislatively, we're going to do it and then we're going to slow walk it and then we're going to fight at every step, but genuine and willing from both sides to integrate, right? And to see the benefits of that. And that perhaps because it was unwilling from one side, guess which? (laughs) Perhaps because of that is why we've ended up in the landscape that we are today in 2023 where we're more segregated now than we were in the 1960s mm-hmm. right um and so how like how does that uh, uh affect this question of like did segregation mm-hmm. did segregation work was segregation good like i i i just think for me one of the biggest parts of it is is in thinking about this idea of separate but equal like that mm-hmm. second part of it um, and in Mississippi, one of the museums that we went to, the civil Ra- Mississippi Civil Rights Museum specifically, um, it talked about how when it, like, pedal came to the metal, like, when it was, like, down to it in the Supreme Court and the, you know, National Guards, everyone was saying, you have to integrate, like, Mississippi has to integrate. Mississippi lawmakers came to Black uh, civil rights leaders and they said, here's what we'll do we'll go for equality. It'll still be separate, but we'll create black schools. We'll try to create black wealth within black communities. We'll try to get you guys in parity with white communities, right? And it was a big, huge, like raucous meeting where the civil rights leaders, some of them themselves were like, this is a good deal. We should take it. Like we should build these schools like for Mm -hmm. our children. Like we should not, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we shouldn't um, force integration where it's not wanted and maybe we should just stay separate and go for the equality part of this right um in the end they decided like everyone came to a consensus that they would not go for this that they wanted equality because again of this this doll test and the idea that like even if it was equal it would still be like uh uh 
like this this lack of empathy that I was talking about before yeah. of like not feeling like a real American and not feeling like you're a part of the mm-hmm. you know American tapestry because you live in a place separate. You know what I mean? Um, and I was recently um, th- this other class that I'm taking. I'm taking a lot of classes on racism this semester. <laughs> um, but we did a census, a sen- like from the questions that were on the census, right? The, the U.S. census that was came out in 2020, and just asking that race question of what your what your race is, the first answer is white, and then you got to find your other. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like if you're not white, right? And so the the fact that that is what the world of separate but equal looks mm-hmm. like, right, mm-hmm. is white first, right? Because that's history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody else after, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's like, we could like conceive of a world where the Mississippi lawmakers did, you know, make good on their promises and did, you know, build schools for Black people mm-hmm. and did try to gain parity. But I, I, I just don't think that would have worked because of this fact that you can then ignore all the stuff that they're not doing. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, we didn't have a conversation about indigenous people mm-hmm, native people mm-hmm. in, in the united states but just like you saying that made me think about let's look at reservations like yeah. like they are separated right like yeah. they have they, they that's how my understanding is how the government yeah. works and mm-hmm. they, they have the land yeah. exactly but it's we can see the levels of poverty inequality Great point. there yeah there's no education systems there that are benefiting the people there and mm-hmm. so it, it just speaks about the willingness of the other counterpart like yeah. in this case white mm-hmm. folks uh to fully like integrate yeah. i think black people the joy the courage all of that was there and they were mm-hmm. willing to mm-hmm. and they did because yeah. when this integration happened the families were sending the kids yeah. to to the schools where they the kids were like being discriminated yep. Yep. and going through this awful you know yeah. experience mm-hmm. they were going to shops and doctors white yeah. doctors but the other the other that it was not happening the other From way the around other side, yeah so yeah. i think it speaks volumes about uh yeah mm-hmm. i t- i still think to an extent i mean well we are and to extent um segregated mm-hmm. in that like and this is again another international student thing mm-hmm. like coming here learning how to be a minority given that i came from a black majority well yeah, yeah, black majority country. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of people of color, like yeah. I remember first being referred to as a person of color, and I was like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, why can't I just be like African or black or like Afro Caribbean? You know what I mean? And like, the more persons use it, like to me, it just centers around like white being the standard mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. as in like. This person is white and you're other. Everyone yeah, else is person of color as yeah. compared to like, even though we have very distinct, as you said, like mm-hmm. you're Latina, I'm black, yeah. I'm from the Caribbean, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like, even though we have very distinct experiences and different forms of discrimination and just like every, everything mm-hmm. along that thing, like we're still classified as like person of color, person of color, person of color. So like, as you're mentioning, about just like the whole topic of the fact that like we are separate, mm-hmm. but we are integrated but still not treated equally. I yeah. think, you know, that was really an uncomfortable experience coming to America yeah. for me. Yeah. I want to jump to the Legacy Museum because this was my absolute favorite part of the week. Like, oh, it yeah. was... The Legacy Museum was so impactful and it kind of encapsulates and brings together everything that we've been mm. talking about this podcast, everything that we did throughout the week. 
in making like the full name of it is the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And it talks about the entire history of black people on these shores um, from like kidnapping from uh, Africa um, and then going on slave ships and, you know, drowning at sea, dying in the, the, the holes and then moving into being enslaved for you know, 300 years and then moving to segregation and then moving through uh, Jim Crow and then moving through what we have now, mass incarceration in the current racial landscape of the U.S. Mm -hmm. It just draws such a direct line that it cannot be ignored. Mm -hmm. And I I hesitate to even call it a museum because it was an experience. Like truly, Mm -hmm. like it's not like there's placards that you read and there's, you know, historical items at this museum. It was like one of the things just to exemplify what this was like for people like you walk in and you see essentially like a bunch of jail uh, cell doors mm-hmm. and then you go up to one of the jail doors <laughs> cells. You go up to one of the cells and it's a hologram of a person who was uh, enslaved and it's them like talking to you about and it, it's not them being like, hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. And I was not They're talking to you like, help me. My son is down the block. I've been separated from mm-hmm. him. Like I like and it that just that got me. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that was one of many such experiences like that. Like that wasn't just like the way they used visual mediums and different things like holograms and videos. And um, I don't know, like just, just like multimedia, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like to like hit you with the truth (laughs) was just like truly, I keep saying an experience, but it, it really got me. So how do we feel about the legacy museum? How do we feel about this direct line that it draws that you cannot ignore between where we are now and where we were then? I thought this museum was important to me in tying everything together Mm -hmm. because, again, that direct line. And from the moment I walked in, I was absolutely scared. (laughs) Like, they had the sea, like, the room with the sea. And and it was like... Because, yeah, you just learn the ancestors jump for a ship. Like, anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just, like, flat water. They probably swam. Like, no, these people were not swimming. <laughs> like, yeah. so it's just, like, wow. And several times during the museum, I had to pinch myself. I was, like, this was 50 years ago. This yeah. was 25 years ago. This was this year ago. Like, mm-hmm. I have to keep reminding myself, like, this happened. Yeah. To me, I don't know. I was just bewildered. I was, like, no way this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it was just so unreal to me. Um, but yeah, that's just my initial experience yeah. with the museum, like, facing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my question for you, Ide, is also thinking about the fact that it was, like, the legacy of it mm-hmm. is the part of the legacy of slavery, but also legacy of lynching. And so they have a big, huge, um, what's mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for? Like, ex- display? Yeah. Like, there were some shelves there. Yeah. Um, uh, and then they also had the the... The hanging, oh my God, what do I, how do I describe this? Memorial? <laughs> yeah, maybe? memorial, I think is a good word for it. Um, but essentially it was like a big, huge uh, vertical bar. Mm-hmm. I, this is, I'm doing it no justice. <laughs> Google this at home, <laughs> but I'm doing it no justice. A huge vertical bar um, of each state and then list of names of people that were lynched in that state. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a display where they did these community events where people would go out and gather soil like from the places where these people were lynched. I think it was something like 4,000 people over the course of, um, you know, Jim Crow segregation, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, and they gathered the soil from each of these places mm-hmm. and then put them in the museum. And again, 
in a way that you just cannot ignore. <laughs> when you're yeah. looking at these huge structures, this art installation, I'm going to call it, but really like memorial, I think is the word for mm-hmm. it. Um, for these people that often it's just like unknown, like we don't even know their names and they got fully lynched or we do know their names and like their stories and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I like thinking about that part of the museum, how did that? Um, yeah, that definitely was uh, impactful yeah. in, in at all levels, right? Mm-hmm. As a as a human being, like yeah. you you look at that and you, and at this point we have experience with lynching, right? We have we went to the Mississippi Museum, yeah, and we had some sort of I had some sort of uh, experience with it, but this one uh, hit you the different way, and I guess it's because of the experiences. I also had a chance to go into they had like a little movie theaters like mm-hmm. they're in each of the sections throughout mm-hmm. the the museum you kind of hear the story behind of how the project this project yeah, of yeah. collecting other soil. some soil mm-hmm. and uh, as a symbolic also for those families and yeah. how what it meant for the families to mm-hmm. come together in this and do this and i think um it's it just like um it, it's, it's still like looking into like how I don't I don't even know if I have the words to, to describe it, but how racism can put us in the this at this level, like mm-hmm. at this level when we cannot see each other as fully mm-hmm. humans, mm-hmm. and we we go to the streams because we have this belief that somehow you are because you are different, you are mm-hmm. dangerous, mm-hmm. and because you are different. Uh, and it, it's it's like you you somehow are going to do something bad to me, yeah. and and it's just like it, it's hard to explain, right? It's hard to explain how uh, can, some people can go through that, and I'm still wondering like what is it like I am able to see this other side mm-hmm. <laughs> that other folks cannot, yeah, right. My question for you, Bernice, is a conversation that we had during the Racism Road Trip um, was about the, like, the value of kind of Black trauma for Mm -hmm. education, right? Mm -hmm. The value of Mm -hmm. putting this in front of your face in a way that you cannot ignore it. And I will say the Legacy Museum didn't have, like, lascivious, like, you know what I mean? Like, the, like, Mm -hmm. uh, pictures or anything like that. I I don't remember seeing anything like that. It it talked about it in real terms. But it didn't have like a noose that would like you know what I mean yeah. like it yes. wasn't like that. Other museums did though, like have like historical documents and you know KKK robes and all these other things mm-hmm. that like were clear sites of violence. And is that there was a point at the Legacy Museum and also at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum where I was like, I have to, I cannot be here anymore. Mm-hmm. Like this is too much. It is making me like it's traumatizing me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Small t trauma, right? Um, and like I. Like, is that valuable? Is that worth it that this is what we have to do to get people to realize, like, it's the truth at the mm-hmm. end of the day, right? Like, the, the, this was traumatic for everyone involved. Is this what we have to do in order to to teach people to keep the history alive? Or is there another way? Is there a value to, to Black trauma, essentially? Mm-hmm. I think um, the way how the conversation came about was questioning if, you know, black persons have to constantly be re-traumatized for the value of basically white persons learning how to not discriminate against Mm -hmm. black persons. Mm -hmm. And so I was just making the point that while 
it is important that these conversations be held mm-hmm. and this is to be reckoned with. I think the way we go about reckoning with it is so very important mm-hmm. because in a way, the way the images are displayed and the way we speak about it is essentially an extension of the things that we speak about in terms mm-hmm. of like the fact that black lives weren't cared about, the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, like we speak about the issue of racial justice in America still <laughs> as mm-hmm. if black lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. Like we speak about them like an animal. Oh, this person will just kill, this black one will just kill, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. you know what I mean? And so especially in the classroom context where you have black students that, you know, have to live through this. Mm-hmm. And I like after, actually after that conversation, well, after the field trip, I had an event um, where I just had a panel of underrepresented students and then I had an intimate discussion and you know one of the things they said that once you make the make, once you make it known because I was asking them do you speak about race to your class to your friends and he said like once I tell them I'm Asian or once I tell them I'm black there's no way I could unrace that line yeah, yeah. like that distinction has been made and so it affects our relationship from that point onwards mm-hmm. and so I think it's the same thing that happens to black students in classrooms so like once you've seen how my ancestors and how my family yeah. has been brutalized, yeah. it's forever going to f- impact my relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think another big part about it is that we're having these conversations in classrooms, but we're not equipping black students, yeah. minority mm-hmm. students, with the tools to have these conversations. Because yeah. you once you put the statistics out there, I mean, once you put the story out there, you have all these perspectives coming out. Yeah. And so you need to know how to deal with that. Yeah. And... And I think that's, again, part of that international student experience. Like, I had to learn how to concept your lines. Like, yeah. I had to speak about for for death in one class, but then the very next class I had was a test. And mm-hmm. so even though I had that short for death on my mind, I can bring that into the exam with me. Yeah. And, like, just what they were seeing about for short and the fact that I had to, like, over-defend, like, okay, but this, then, that, and that. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. and it's a sense from what... And I think another part of, like, that whole... Black students have to be educated on how to teach other students how not to discriminate against them. Yeah, as, yeah. as funny as that sounds, is the fact that like I grew up in the Caribbean, which is a big part of why I knew I know my history. Like I mm-hmm. know, like actually, da, 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 this is why black persons are this, and this is why black persons have yeah. lower, you know, etc. So like we need to see more of that. So just to encompass all my points, yes, we there needs to be a place for us to speak about this. Mm-hmm. But it can be in a way that black students have to be traumatized to the value of white education. Yeah. And so we have to be just very careful of the connotations that we speak, like the words. So for example, simple as saying enslaved African as compared to slave. Mm-hmm. So the, just terminology, because language has so much power. Yeah. Like this use of the phrase persons of color. Mm-hmm. I'm just like really questioning, you know, what we say and how we say it and the impact that it's having on students. Because I think a lot of the curriculum that is we have high in higher education enough effective of that of just being considerate of mm-hmm. like this is someone's uncle this is someone like yeah i because i do feel it you know so yeah i think it's like i i'm holding the legacy museum in contrast to the african-american history museum in dc mm-hmm. um that like where that starts in the basement and it talks about the history of enslaved uh, people and then it moves up to like the highest floor where it talks about black culture it talks about the nails and the hair and the mm-hmm. you know it's more of a celebration um and so i i think that's the like contrast mm-hmm. that has to be drawn and also the it, it feels like a burden that mm-hmm. that black people have to carry of 
constantly caring about our trauma, of mm. constantly educating others about why they should care about our trauma, of constantly like needing to be the expert on our own histories where everyone else gets to be, you know, uneducated about mm-hmm. it. Like that's the part of their um, um, of their privilege. Uh, and, and the fact that I, I think it is a good point of like black trauma being used for white education. And if that's the only story, like, of Black people, mm-hmm. like you said, like, if you, your only story uh, of contending with me um, is through the story of slavery and, mm-hmm. you know, discrimination against Black people and not the celebration of Black culture, Black power, Black, you know what I mean, all the achievements mm-hmm. that we've made, then that changes our relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Then as much as we're integrated, as much as, you know, mm-hmm. Black students can go to Notre Dame now, like, yeah. all of it, like... As much as that happens, it doesn't um, it doesn't click if that's the only story you're hearing about mm-hmm. us, right? Because we just went through a whole <laughs> trip through the South, right? And although we ate good food and we, like, took a part of the culture, we mainly focused on just the trauma of it. Mm-hmm. And then it also asks the question of who are these places for, right? Are they mm-hmm. for Black people? Because there were parts in the Legacy Museum where I felt like this is to honor us, like, mm-hmm. to honor mm-hmm. these people who don't even have names sometimes and were brutally killed and now there's a place for them Mm -hmm. there's a place to go mourn them there's a you know what i mean like this is to honor us versus like is this to educate white people so Mm -hmm. they can be better you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and and not just white people but the people in power like Mm -hmm. so that they can be better because a big part of the legacy museum is the innocence project is um brian stevenson like who started this project of um of freeing people who have been wrongly convicted Mm -hmm. like uh from prison and like he's a lawyer and i also want to talk about one last thing before we go um so once we had gone through the whole legacy museum and had our you know amazing experience we're randomly walking right outside and we saw brian stevenson (laughs) the founder of this museum and the head of the um the Innocence Project, walking, and Bernice and I and one other student, like, chased him down. I would say Bernice took the lead running, <laughs> chased him down so we could shake hands with him and get a photo. Why was that important? Why was that, like, a thing that we wanted? Mm-hmm. I see him as our modern-day Martin Luther King. Yeah. And I think he would have as much social or influence or cultural, what do you mm-hmm. call it, cultural swag or something like that. Yeah. Social capital. Ache. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> social capital. I think he would have as much social capital if we really took the movement as seriously as we did during the time of Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And this is not to say that there isn't still being having progress being done in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. today, but where you see like communities coming together yeah. and organizing, yeah. like someone didn't have to die. Well, even the person to die regularly. Yep. Like, but like what I see today and a point I made earlier that we need a sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, if you keep agitating the way we're um, organizing and moving mm-hmm. together in 2020 and in 2021, like the progress we've been, a- we would be able to make, you know. But let's just uh, come back to your point. I do see him as like our icon, like yeah. a hero. Like he is a hero. Hard to agree. Me. Yeah. <laughs> like he brought all these things together and he did it in a way that was so deliberate. Like yeah. he didn't mix words. Like you don't have to guess what he Fully was trying agree. to say. Like mm. this is the story of America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not only that, but he's also taking tangible steps to repair it, like working mm-hmm. with the um, mm-hmm. Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the work he's doing is so important and we need more 
individuals like that mm-hmm. working in different issues because again the issue of racism is so pervasive yeah. it has touched every part of a black person's life and yeah. it, one person said it that even though slavery wasn't a inheritance the effect of sta- a slavery yeah. is very close on inheritance yeah. the fact that I have and just to give you a story um, like I came to America and I remember being the first, first time being followed around in a store and mm-hmm. I was just like oh like I wasn't even taking it seriously because mm-hmm. again I'm from the Caribbean like yeah. I've never really experienced racism, racism to that extent mm-hmm. but then my aunt was like you're being racially profiled girl yeah <laughs> like because like I had to teach myself how to be black because mm-hmm. that issue of racism is still pervasive and I'm telling you this was like four months ago I can't remember but I've been in the US for seven months but so it still happened mm-hmm. so over winter break yeah winter break December, that time, right? Yeah. December, January. Um, so yeah, this this is something ha- like black persons are being followed today. Black persons are being called yeah. racial terms today. Yeah. Black persons are being let out of programs. All these things that are mm-hmm. happening today, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, we need to have more persons agitating for change the way that mm-hmm. he is doing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not just like, I think as you mentioned, we have fragile mem- memories. Yeah. And I know, yes, you know, we all we have the inflation and the taxes and this and that, but like mm. I think this is such a big issue. It touches all of those points, you know yeah. what I mean? So and in my opinion, there isn't anything that we do that does not have a racial ed- element. Yeah. I'm I'm coming to realise that like in any single issue I come across, there's always a racial element. Mm-hmm. So you know, me studying climate change and the intersection between mm-hmm. racial justice, like food and that intersection with racial justice, mm-hmm. like probably makeup and the intersection with racial justice every single thing that we do and every single thing that we interact with has an element of racial justice in it so I think it's important for us to recognize that and we each individual have to you know take up arms and fight those individual causes Mm because like we can't have Brian Stevenson doing that and that and that and that you know what I mean we need more persons like him and I think it's up to us to do that you know yeah, I, I definitely fully hard agree with everything that you've said. Um, and I think it's a great place to wrap it up um, and to thank you guys for your time. Um, and, and any last words before we take off any, you know, final encapsulations of, of the week and our experiences and the connection to today? Uh, no, definitely that I, I joke and say, but seriously uh, said that I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to have done this trip because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise I wouldn't like be exposed in the levels that I was exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think not not many people have that chance mm-hmm. and very early reasons. So or you name yeah. it. But I think what's something that I I got out of this trip is that I need to look into my own like we mm-hmm. you mentioned before internalized racism because mm-hmm. it is there because yeah. I am a product of a society mm-hmm. that has been working on the basis uh, of uh, one class or one group being above mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. and I think ones need to be I need to be reminded of that um, and I think that that was something that I, I want to keep looking and as Bernice says like we need to um, get involved and try to find the ways in which we can, like our mm-hmm. fields, like whatever we do, that we can keep working towards like racial justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this trip was really important in teaching me the power of a lie mm-hmm. and allowing me to be exposed to the nuanced story of slavery and 
the importance of centering Christian's stories in the midst of all of that. Like, I didn't, I didn't even think about the separation of the families that mm-hmm. happened during slavery before coming to the trip. Because mm-hmm. I, I learned about slavery, but you learn so much more. Um, and overall, I think the fact that a lot of the issues that we face today are really complex. And so we have to be intentional in the way that we intersect issues as well, like understanding against the institutional factors. Because I went to the Angolia Museum, Angolia Museum, and just just analyzing the history behind all yeah. these issues. I have so much to say mm-hmm. um, about racial justice, but I think that's well. And then to me, that's just my personal commitment, understanding that there are so many factors at play and I have to be the one to be the detective in figuring out mm-hmm. those factors yeah. and how it interrelates. Yeah, I think for me, like final words, oh, at least this week, but really this kind of shift in focus that I've made, like from when I first came to this program uh, two years ago, oh my God, <laughs> um, and where my focus was more on international aid and thinking about how to help Haiti um, and thinking about how to like better the international aid system to now, I, I think my focus is more on racial justice in the US and these weird, it's not really weird, but these huge like moments in my life personally, like, so the first one was when I moved to the US, I was nine years old. The second one, I remember 10 years later, I was 18, um, or nine years later, I was 18, I was heading to college, and we also got our full US citizenship. Like, we went from, you know, permanent residency, green card, like, you know, temporary status, all the way, it took us 10 years, my family to gain full American citizenship. And it was like, right at the nick of time where I was turning 18, where I needed like FAFSA and all these other things that you can only get when you're a US citizen. Um, And also the fact that I think I was 17, like a couple months before my birthday when we got it. And so then my parents could just pay for themselves and I would automatically be, um, you know, a citizen based on their status. I'm saying all of this because I was writing my college essays in this time and thinking about what it means that I had now lived in the U.S. for as many years as I had lived in Haiti, right? Nine years in Haiti, nine years in the U.S. Now I'm 18. Who am I, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And then we cut to 10 years later. Now I'm 28. And now I've lived in the U.S. twice as long as I've lived in Haiti, right? Like I've gone back, I've visited um, and contending with this identity because when I first came here, I definitely did not see myself as a Black American, like African American, mm-hmm. as in, you know, the Black mm-hmm. people who lived here and were formerly enslaved. I saw myself as Haitian, and I still do, like, see myself as, as Haitian or Haitian American now. Um, and and this, this, this kind of wanting to run away from the idea of being a Black American, mm-hmm. right? Because it is all these stories of trauma that we just talked about. Like, that's the story in my mind. And I was like, no, Haitians are a proud people. We're the first only, like, successful uh, slave rebellion. Like, we got independence in 1804. Like, truly, like, there's a lot to be proud of, like, in my Haitian history and legacy. And just not wanting to be, like, yet another, you know, Black American to be part of that I'm going to say stream of trauma, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now thinking about it and my shift in focus, like I just said, from Haiti International Aid to racial issues in the U.S., in seeing that, like, it's all one story. Yes. <laughs> like, the story of Haitian Revolution and the story of slavery in the U.S. and the story of segregation and the story of, like, essentially the segregation of Haiti from world politics and international aid for, like, all these years because, you know, we gained our independence and we're a Black republic. Like, you can't have that (laughs) be real, Mm -hmm. like, right on the shores of, you know, Louisiana, where slavery is still a thing. And integrating these two things together, like, that 
is a big part of what this trip mm-hmm. really did for me is mm-hmm. to sharpen to see that it really is all one big story and that it's not a choice that I have to make between being Black American or being Caribbean American. Like, it, it's all one, right? Yeah. And that's the power that I think we have, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's when we realize we're all living in the same story. Like, mm-hmm. we all have the same world. You've been listening to The Crockcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of The Croccast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review the podcast, which will help more people find the show. For updates, stories, and videos from The Croc Institute, follow online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. <laughs>